Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas. And each week, I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I follow the same template every week. So if you're new to this podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it all about. And of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or is it just a terrible waste of your valuable time? As a friendly warning, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you're also going to get some of my hot takes on many current events. I sure do like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. For me, it's about fussing and cussing, so please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Chariots of Fire. It was released March 30th, 1981. It's directed by Hugh Hudson. It stars Ben Cross, Ian Charlson, and Nigel Havers. It was nominated for a total of seven Oscars, and it won four. It won for Best Picture, Best Original Score, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Costume Design. If you'd like to watch it, well, I couldn't find anywhere to stream it for free, but for a few dollars, you can watch it on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, Redbox, and Apple TV. So what is it about? It's based on a true story of two British athletes who competed in the 1924 Olympics. The movie begins in 1978. We're at a funeral in London. They are mourning the loss of Harold Abrahams, and we immediately flash back to when Harold was a young man running on the beach with some of his teammates. You gotta hand it to this movie. The opening sequence immediately swings for the fences. Most sports movies, you have to wait until like an hour in before you get to see that inspirational, goosebump-inducing training sequence, which is inevitably set to an award-winning song that you're going to be humming for weeks. But not Chariots of Fire. They go for it five minutes in. You'll know this scene. It's set to the brilliant score by Vangelis. Here it is. Yes, that is how this movie starts. So right from the very beginning, you're sucked in. The year is 1919. Harold Abrahams is a young Jewish man who has just started attending Cambridge University. I guess I didn't realize that this was an issue in England at that time, but we do see how much anti-Semitism he is forced to endure. It's somewhat veiled, as the staff and fellow students of Cambridge would never want to be perceived as anything but perfect English gentlemen, but it's there. And you can tell Abrahams rightly has a chip on his shoulder. 
he's no doubt feeling like he has to prove more than anyone else. But Abraham's has a great many talents. For starters, he can sing. He's quite the theater kid and participates in the Gilbert and Sullivan Club. I could see why this is seen as cool. He and his fellow performers are talented, confident, and very entertaining. But more importantly, Abrahams can run. And I mean, he can really fucking run, like the wind. He becomes the first person ever to complete what's called the Trinity Great Court Run, which is a lap around the college courtyard in less time than it takes the big clock to strike 12. So it's one of those clocks that dongs every hour, right? So basically, it dongs to, to signal 12 o'clock, he starts running, and he has to make it back before the 12th gong, which I think is probably 12 seconds. They never really say for sure. But he is the first person to ever accomplish this. So they all think he's a fucking rock star. As his college career continues, he remains undefeated in a string of national running competitions and gains quite a reputation, with everyone predicting he'll be a future Olympian. At the same time, over in Scotland, we see the story of another young man who was also quite the little speed demon. Eric Liddell was born in China to missionary parents and is now living in Scotland with his sister. They are devout Christians, and his sister Jeannie doesn't approve of his running. She believes his time should be devoted to doing good work for God. The very idea that he would consider a plan to pursue competitive running, she thought was self-serving and an affront to their beliefs. But see, Liddell is a decorated sprinter himself, and he's widely recognized when he and his sister travel around to spread the gospel. He begins to see running as a way to glorify God that his speed and grace are part of God's will. So he feels compelled to show the world what an athlete who has God at his back can accomplish. They never come out and say it. And trust me, we're really supposed to like Liddell. And I do. He's nothing but a kind and generous man. But you can't help but feel there's this kind of undercurrent brewing, right? It's that whole white Christian Aryan race supremacy thing going on. The belief that he will be the best because God somehow made him better than other men. And I can see how overtly devout Christianity eventually led to Nazism a few years later. The belief that you are chosen by God to be the best is a very powerful drug. Back at Cambridge, we watch as Harold Abrahams meets and falls in love with the woman who would be his eventual wife. Her name was Sybil. And she was an English singer and actress. And she was also pretty popular in London at the time as well. They have this great kind of first date where she's very Velma Kelly-ish. They go to this restaurant where she's widely known and everyone sort of reveres her. And she's like, oh, darling, I'll take my regular table. And oh, darling, please have the chef send me my favorite. And she doesn't realize up until partway through that dinner that Abraham's is Jewish And so as soon as he tells her, she kind of has this moment where she goes, oh, my. And then she's over it about five minutes later. But her embarrassment comes from her, oh, darling, have the chef send me my favorite. They both just can't help but laugh when it's delivered to the table. And I'm not kidding. It looks like it's like a half a pig sitting on her plate. (laughs) And, And neither of them knows what to say, but they both just laugh. It's a very memorable first date, to say the least. But Abrahams is becoming ever more serious about his future as a champion. 
So he attempts to hire a coach, a man by the name of Sam Musabini. Technically, Sam shouldn't coach him because Abrahams was only an amateur athlete and Musabini was a professional coach. So Musabini turns him down, which is predicted. And it's not until after Abrahams and Liddell race against each other for the first time that Musabini changes his mind. In their first ever matchup, Liddell beats Abrahams. And it's a big shock to his system. Imagine going your entire life believing you're the fastest runner, and then you get beat. It is kind of surprising to see how bad Abrahams takes the loss. Even his girlfriend Sybil is like, Jesus, snap out of it. So you lost a race, big fucking whoop. I mean, she says it a lot nicer than that. But he just can't collect himself. He seems ready to quit the sport altogether. And he's like, but how do I go on knowing that I can be beat? And Sybil's like, how about you pull up your big boy pants and you go out and you beat him the next time? Like, seriously, how hard of a concept is this to grasp? But it's life-changing for Abrahams, since he is the man who has never lost. Sam Musabini starts coaching Abrahams, which is frowned upon by the college masters at Cambridge. They believe it's not gentlemanly for an amateur to employ a professional coach. But Abrahams interprets their concern as being anti-Semitism. They're just trying to keep the Jewish man from succeeding. And Abrahams does not care. He's hell-bent on never losing again. And if hiring a renowned coach will help him succeed, then fuck those haters. Eric Liddell's running starts to interfere with his dedication to his church. He misses one church prayer meeting, and his sister accuses him of no longer caring about God. That old genie, man, she's what we call singularly focused to a crazy degree. I'm watching this and I'm thinking, geez, she needs to get a new hobby. Of course, Eric has not lost his faith. He's more devoted than ever. He plans to eventually return to China to complete his mission. But for now, he believes he's being divinely inspired to run in the Olympics and not doing so would be a dishonor to God. So after a few years of training, both Liddell and Abrahams are selected to represent Britain in the 1924 Olympics to be held in Paris. There are a couple other guys from Cambridge who we've met along the way during the movie. Andrew Lindsay, Aubrey Montague, and Henry Stollard, who were also selected. Abrahams and Liddell are going to compete against each other in the 100 meter. It's the first time they've faced each other since Abraham's life-altering loss. And just when we think everything is looking up for our fleet-footed duo, God comes along and ruins everything. So just as they are about to board the ship for Paris, Eric Liddell finds out that the preliminary heats for the 100 meter race are going to be held on a Sunday. And, well... Good Christians don't run on the Sabbath. So it is with a great deal of conviction and probably a whole lot of foolishness, Eric Liddell, the potential Olympic gold medalist, is going to drop out of the race. Despite intense pressure from the British Olympic Committee and even the Prince of Wales, who at the time was Edward VIII, and I'll talk more about him later, Liddell still refuses to run on a Sunday. And here we are in the audience. We're watching these powerful men lean on him, 
really heavily. Do it for your country. Do it for your queen. But none of it works. Eric Liddell will not participate. You can't help but wonder why they press him so hard. Are they more fearful that the victory will be given to an American or to a Jew? But this swings the door wide open for Abrahams. He had lost badly to two heavily favored American runners in the 200 meters. So this will be his last chance to win a medal. And with Liddell out of the race, he's got a good shot. Unless he falls flat on his face, he'll be in contention for a medal. Now, as luck would have it, one of the other teammates, Andrew Lindsay, who had already won a silver medal in another event the day before, offered to give Liddell his spot in the 400-meter race. So imagine that level of generosity. No, 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 it's okay. I've already won a medal. I think Eric should have a chance to win one too. (laughs) It's impossible to fathom any of today's Olympic athletes doing that. No, 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 one medal is plenty for me. Really? No, I've caught my limit. I want to share the wealth. (laughs) Sure, that would never happen. But instead of Lindsay's shocking generosity being the biggest news story, all anyone can talk about is how Liddell's religious convictions held strong, risking his chance to earn national athletic pride. He gave up a gold medal to honor his God. This makes headlines around the world and galvanizes the religious faithful. Liddell is invited to deliver a sermon at the Paris Church of Scotland that Sunday. Abrahams ends up winning the gold medal in the 100 meters. It's bittersweet because his coach was barred from the stadium, so he didn't get to see his protege pull off the ultimate victory. Abrahams has once again proven to himself that he's the fastest man and that all of his goals have been accomplished. Eric Liddell would have an uphill battle. His main event was the 100 meters, so having to compete in the 400 was well beyond what anyone thought he was capable of. The American coach actually tells his runners, hey, don't worry, Liddell's not going to be effective at this distance. It's their race. Nothing's going to stop them from winning. But just before the start of the race, another runner hands Liddell a note of support, which contains an inspirational Bible quote. And that was all Eric Liddell needed. With God at his back, he kicked the shit out of everybody and won a gold medal in an event he wasn't even trained to run in. It's a miracle. The 1924 British Olympic team returns home in glorious victory. Question one. Does chariots of fire stand the test of time? Yes, but not probably in the way you think it would or should. I mean, of course, in modern society, we still revere Olympic athletes. So it's a story about two of Britain's best, and it's worth watching. It's moving and very inspirational. If it were made today, we'd still see this prevailing religious conflict that's the undertone of this movie. There are people among us who are hyper-Christian, who honestly believe that their religion and their beliefs and their God and their way of doing things makes them superior to everyone and everything else. They take that whole, we are God's chosen, to the billionth degree of fanaticism. But they're also the first to claim, I'm not anti-Semitic. And the rest of us are like, oh, sweetie, even on your best day, you couldn't hide it. I think the main difference being today's ultra-devout Christians 
would never let a little old thing like honoring God on the Sabbath get in the way of their sporting events. Just ask Tim Tebow, who was perfectly fine wearing clothes of different fabrics while touching the skin of a dead pig on the day of our Lord to earn a big, fat, greedy paycheck in a packed NFL stadium. I guess God no longer expects athletes to have the same devotion to him that Eric Liddell once had. But I've said this before, the true test of a movie's staying power, it lies in the music, right? I'm going to give you a couple of great examples of Vangelis' theme song being used in a modern way. I mean, not modern, because these are older movies. But what I'm trying to express is that when you least expect it, it seems Chariots of Fire references sneak into movies all the damn time. So for example, it's in the movie Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey. There's a great scene in the movie Old School where Will Ferrell and Vince Vaughn have to convince everyone that their fraternity is legit by competing in school-sanctioned athletic events. So they choose to do rhythm gymnastics to the chariots of fire theme. It, it's, it's Will Ferrell at his best. It's also in Madagascar. It's also in Kicking and Screaming, which I think is also another Will Ferrell movie. And if you're Gen X like me, you've most certainly seen the original Vacation movie with Chevy Chase. That's a story where a man takes his whole family on a cross-country road trip from hell on a quest to get to Wally World, which is basically the movie version of Six Flags in California. They get there and Clark parks way out in the back of the parking lot, telling his wife that when they leave, they're going to be the first ones out. It's genius. Then he challenges his son Rusty to a race. And there it is. Dun, 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 dun. As they're running in slow motion across the parking lot, jumping through the air. Dun, 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 dun. And of course, they get there and find out the park is closed. But that's a story for another time. Or how about one of my most favorite movies, The Holiday, the one where Kate Winslet and Cameron Diaz switch homes for Christmas. There's a great scene that takes place in a blockbuster video where Jack Black's character is picking random movies off the shelf and loudly humming their theme songs, trying to embarrass Kate Winslet. Probably violating copyright by playing it, but I just can't resist. Have you seen this? <gasps> Chariots of Fire loved it. Cling, 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 cling. Such a great score by Vangelis. He took electronic scores to a new level. It was groundbreaking. I'm going to test you on this later. It's such a great scene. And like all these others I mentioned, I mean, it's just so wonderful how it sneaks in every once in a while. Here it is 40 years later, and we're still paying tribute to Chariots of Fire. And there's one more pretty recent mention that I think is of note. If you watch The Crown on Netflix, you know we're at the point in the 80s where Charles and Diana have just gotten a divorce. She's dating Dodie Fayette, and there's a scene in The Crown where we get a flashback to what Dodie's life was like before he met Diana. Well, he financed movies, and we see him on the set as they are filming one of the movies he's produced, which is Chariots of Fire. So there you have it. It all comes full circle by way of Netflix. And speaking of the crown, I did mention Edward VIII earlier, and I didn't want to leave you hanging. He was Queen Elizabeth's uncle. For those of you who don't know this story, his father, King George V, died 
and Edward became king. But he lasted less than a year. He abdicated his throne, largely because back then, you couldn't be king and marry a woman who was divorced. Now, they've obviously changed the rules for Charles and Camilla, wink, wink. But this dude gave up his throne to be with Wallace Simpson, who was a twice-divorced American woman. The reason I'm telling you this is because this paved the way for Elizabeth to eventually become queen. She was never supposed to be queen because her father was never supposed to be king. But Uncle Edward abdicated and left the throne to his brother. And of course, Edward never goes away quietly. In fact, he causes quite a stir in the late 30s and early 40s when he was a suspected Nazi sympathizer. Now, I personally feel he leaned very strongly in the direction of that white Christian supremacy theme, which is why back in 1924, when he was still just the Prince of Wales, it's telling that he's in the room trying to convince Eric Liddell to run on a Sunday, because the alternative is that the gold medal winner for Britain may end up being a Jew. And my bet is that would have horrified him. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? So I think it's damn good. And I understand its worthiness. But to be honest, it had some stiff competition. The other movies nominated that year were Atlantic City, On Golden Pond, Reds, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I never saw Atlantic City, but I can say that I would have very easily supported any of those other three just as much as Chariots of Fire. I mean, come on, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Talk about another movie that has had a huge pop culture significance for more than 40 years. I don't think I can count the number of times I've actually seen it. There were other movies that could have easily been nominated as well, like Absence of Malice, The French Lieutenant's Woman, Only When I Laugh, Arthur, and Ragtime. All of those had multiple nominations in a variety of categories. I think the true inspirational story of Chariots of Fire is what put it over the top for Academy voters. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, this was my first time seeing it, and I was not disappointed. It's well-written, and it's very well-acted. I even enjoyed the Gilbert and Sullivan musical numbers. The cast is filled with talented singers and dancers, and the costumes, oh, the costumes are spot on. The fancy dresses and well-tailored suits of the early 20s, it's all very eye-catching. While I'm not a religious person, I was intrigued by the devotion shown by Eric Liddell. His sister was a bit much for my taste, but I do find it fascinating how far people will go in their devotion to a set of religious beliefs. The movie isn't entirely accurate, as there were some athletes who declined an opportunity to be portrayed in the movie. But it still has really well-defined characters, and it's a really interesting story. It goes well beyond the normal sports movie, which I think is part of its appeal. Now, it's not an electrifying movie. Don't watch it if you're looking for action and excitement. It's a quiet drama, and it can be a bit slow at times, but it's definitely worth a watch if you've never seen it. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. 
This has been episode 28 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or you just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of the freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thank you, and see you next week.